Well, how good has Colossians been so far? Paul uh, has written to the Colossian church and he's given thanks to God for them, for their faith and their love. You remember when we were there back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. And then Paul goes on to talk about how having uh, heard of their faith worked out in love, he's been praying for them to grow in their knowledge and understanding of God and his gospel. Verse 9, for this reason, since the day we've heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And as he's been thanking God for them and praying for them to grow, he's also reminded them about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. Verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. That's who Jesus is. What about what Jesus has done? Chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing at them over, by, over them by the cross. Paul's thankful to them. He's praying for them. He's reminding them about who Jesus is. He's reminding them of the power of what Jesus has done on the cross. And he's been telling them, as, as we sort of got to last week, that in light of all of this amazing stuff that God has done because of who God is and who Jesus is, well then they need to live with Jesus as their Lord. Remembering who he is, remembering what he's done for us, live with Christ as Lord. And his encouragement is to do that by putting to death the old self, chapter 3 verse 5, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry, and putting on the new self. Therefore, as God's, uh, chapter 3 verse 12, therefore as God's chosen holy, a chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's been like a pretty encouraging letter, hasn't it? All that God has done for us in Christ and this new life God calls us into as God's people, putting to death immorality and impurity and evil and greed and lust and putting on compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Have you been encouraged? I've been encouraged. Absolutely. It's been wonderful to be reminded about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and the kind of life that God is calling us to as we submit to Christ as Lord. Well, Paul is continuing that theme in our reading today. Christ is Lord over your life, 
in all aspects, including how you relate to one another in your household. And perhaps for some of us, when we get to this part of Colossians, it's the first time we start to think, maybe Colossians is not so wonderful after all. I mean, it says, verse 18, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. It says in verse 20, and this will depend on who you are as to whether you think this is good or not, children, obey your parents. Or in verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Submission, obedience, slaves, yuck. But actually, if that's our response and we want to and our, our aim is to justify that response, perhaps that's actually revealing something about our view of the world being shaped more by the world than it is by God's word. Perhaps if we react like that, what it reveals is that part of us actually deep down believes not in the sovereign God of the Bible, but in our own sovereignty as individuals. You see, the world we live in says to submit is to be weak, to obey is to be curtailed. Our world says that the only person who should have any say over how you live is you. But of course, at the very least, if we've been following along Colossians to date and nodding our head in furious agreement at all that he's been saying about how wonderful Jesus is and, and, and all that he's done for us, then we need to at least say, well, submitting to Jesus as Lord and obeying him, well, that's good. Individual autonomy is not the ultimate good. Christ is Lord is. So perhaps we're revealing something of our hearts in our reaction. But second, we also might have a bit of a warped view of what it is to be a leader or to have power. That might be the other thing it's revealing in our hearts and in our heads. Because perhaps if we respond uncomfortably to this, what we think is that if someone... Uh, is someone that we should submit to, or if I'm a person who has authority, then I can do whatever I want with my authority, that I can abuse my power, that I can treat people unkindly. And we'd be kind of right to think that because we just see that happening all the time in our world. People use power and abuse it constantly. And so we think that power, leadership and authority are inherently bad rather than being badly used. But actually, for Christians, our view on power and authority is different. That is, people are given power and authority and then given exceptionally large amounts of responsibility to use that for the right and good uh, purposes under God. So take, for example, the government. 
As Christians, we believe that we need to be subject to the government, Romans 13.1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. But the expectation is that the governments use their power to bring about God's justice, and if they don't, then they fall under, under judgment. Or uh, another more localised example, pastors, people like me, Hebrews 13 says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, not a burden for that would be of no benefit to you. The idea in the scriptures is that I, as your pastor, uh, you, you're supposed to submit to me as I watch over you and try and help you live as a Christian. And any authority or power that I have that comes from God, I'm called to use that for your benefit to help you grow in all godliness. And as a pastor, as we read in other places, I am held to a higher standard by God as to how I use that, as to how I pastored you. So power is given by God to certain people and an authority, but it is given in a way that is to be used appropriately and helpfully and for the good of others. So, how do we understand our reading today that calls for us to live together well in the household? Well, as we look at these relationships in uh, Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 1, we can start by trying to appeal to Colossians 3, 11 as a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card. So we can say, well, look what Colossians 3, 11 says. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. We can take a passage like that and we can say... What we have here is a, 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 a picture of true biblical equality which overrides anything that seems to paint a picture of less equality than that. And so Paul stated that beautiful truth about how equal we all are in Christ, but when he gets uh, to, to continue writing seven verses later, he's unfortunately not able to kind of overcome cultural norms and realise the full impact of what he meant in chapter, uh, in, in verse 11. And then you might appeal to somewhere like Galatians 3.28, which says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And say, see, Paul, he got it, but he didn't quite get it. He, he, he understood that there was equality for all, but he was just still a man bound by first century norms and he couldn't quite overcome them. Now I want to say, it's nice to think of people who lived in the first century as bumbling fools who didn't know as much as we do, but it's not real life. And of course Paul wrote verse 11 and verse 18. And like, I don't know about you, but he seems like a pretty smart guy. Paul wrote about the oneness in Christ and our equality in Christ 
and about how to live in the household. And he writes about both things multiple times and says the same kind of things in both occasions. He, he, he says we're all one in Christ and he says there's a way to live together in your household. So if you go and have a look sometime at 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 or Ephesians 5 uh, verse 22, he's talking about the relationships we're to have as Christians in a home and they sound a lot like the relationships he describes in uh, Colossians 3, uh, 18 to 4, 1. So what are we to do? Well, uh, a commentator called Douglas Moo says this, we suggest then that these instructions within the household code, whilst obviously directed toward and thereby reflecting the culture of that time, e.g. by addressing slavery, are not simply reflections of that culture. They must be heard as an authentic New Testament voice integrated with and not simply overridden by the very important insistence on equality in Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? We need to have an integrated view. We need to figure out how we hold our equality in Christ together with these instructions of Paul's in Colossians 3, uh, 17 and following and in other places. So how do we do that? How do we take an integrated view? Well, first thing we need to say is, it's, it's sort of obvious, but requires restating that when we become a Christian and we live with Christ as Lord, that doesn't do away with our earthly relationships and responsibilities. It's not like we become uh, Christians who live under the Lordship of Christ and then we don't still have local governments to interact with or politicians that we have to deal with or families that we have to live in. Christ is Lord doesn't do away with the world we live in, but it transforms the way we relate to the world we live in. We have to bring not just our individual behaviour under the Lordship of Christ, but our life together in the church, in the family and in society too. And what also is important, I think, to note as we consider this is that in uh, Paul's household code, which is here and in places like Ephesians 5, there's a mutuality present which is very different from the other codes of Paul's day. That is, the man, the husband or the father or the owner doesn't just get to have a submissive wife and obedient children and slaves who do what he says and that's the end of the matter. No, he has obligations too. To love his wife, in verse 19, to not embitter his children and encourage them, in verse 21, and to provide for his slaves rightly and fairly, in chapter 4, verse 1. So actually, I think what we see here is Paul using the idea of us being equal in Christ to radically reshape how people live together in his day and age. The head of the house is not free from responsibility or obligations to those who live with them, nor is he free from his own responsibility to the lordship of Christ. So... What do we do with this? How does it look like for us to live out these instructions of Paul 
today if we can't simply dismiss them as meaningless? Well, the first thing is to remember what we've already been discussing up to this point, which is Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. He is our ultimate authority. And everything we do as Christians, we do in response to who he is and to what he has done for us. And when Paul gives these instructions, he gives them to men and women, children and adults, masters and slaves, who have also just received instructions about how they're to put to death the old self with its anger and rage and malice, and to put on the new self with its compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and love and thankfulness. So whatever this is going to look like, it's going to look like people who are doing that first thing as they do this second thing. Does that make sense? So if a husband's angry and not putting that to death and not filled with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, we've got a big problem. Christ is Lord and he needs to submit himself to him and put to death the old self and put on the new self. As does the wife, as does the child, as does the slave, as does the master. That's what comes first. Living together, then, is done like this. Husbands and wives with submission and love. There's a mutuality in these two things. Let's talk about uh, verse 18 first and the submission of a wife. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. What can we say about this? Well, the first thing we need to say is that the Greek word there for submitting is about voluntary submission. It's, it, it's used in other places to talk about voluntarily putting yourself under the authority or direction of someone or something else. And what also needs to be said is it's a different word for for slaves and for children. You see it in our, picked up in our translations, right? Children have to obey, slaves have to obey, but wives submit. There's a different quality to the thing. Submission to another human who is on the same level as us is done voluntarily and freely as a way of recognising how God has ordered society. And any submission to another human is always conditional on our first allegiance to God. So Christians, for example, we submit ourselves to the government, but it's conditional, right? Because we submit ourselves first to Christ as Lord. And if the government says, don't go to church and don't tell people about Jesus, we say, no thanks, we must because we're submitted to Christ first. And so it is for the husband and wife, if the husband is not submitting himself to Jesus, loving his wife as Christ loved the church, a la Ephesians 5.25, then submission, I think, for the wife actually looks like calling him out. 
because our first allegiance together is to Christ. When Elisa calls me out for my ungodly behaviour, do I get to say, be, be submissive and, listen, and, 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 and shush? Well, I, I mean, maybe I could try that, but she'd probably be living in the rectory without me. Um, no. It's, I think that's actually part of what it looks like for, for, her, for her to help me grow as a Christian. Let me tell you, you, you think you've got some problem with the way I do things, she's got more. And she's right to call me out and I'm right to listen to her. I must listen to her because God has placed her in my life to help me grow as a Christian. My job is to love her as Christ loved the church. I love those extra words that Paul adds in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, verse 19, and do not be harsh with them. Love is horribly understood in our culture. Sometimes it goes as deep as this, love is love. What? What is that? Well, God is actually love, and he shows what love is by sending his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Love is sacrifice. When Paul says to the husband, love your wife, he says... Be ready to die for her. Maybe literally, perhaps, but certainly metaphorically. What does your wife need to thrive? What does your wife need from you to, 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 to help her be the best she can be? To help her as she seeks to submit to Christ? It's very difficult to love your wife like that. Because we're all selfish by nature, aren't we? And as I've just alluded to, when we're not loving our wives well, they tell us. But we need to remember as husbands, if we're going to love like Christ loves his church, that we need to be sacrificial and Christ-like. We need to remember that Jesus is our Lord and that we need to be putting to death our old self and putting on the new self. That's the kind of husband Paul wants you to submit to. A husband who sacrificially loves you, who's willing to die for you, who's seeking the best of you and who's submitting himself to Christ's lordship in all areas of his life. Love and submission, husbands and wives. Next we get children and fathers in particular, but I think also parents. And we get the relationship of obedience and encouragement. So to the children in the room, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. See how long you get through today before they quote that at you. But God has placed you in your family and he's put your parents in authority over you. 
Just like with wives and husbands, though, it's under God's authority and it's as they seek to submit themselves to Christ as Lord. It's also, it end, this ends at some point. I, when I go around to my parents' house this afternoon, they can't tell me what to do because I'm an adult and I don't live under their house anymore. This is about children living in the home uh, under the, the, the kind of authority of the parents. And again, it's the kind of parent or the kind of father who's the kind of husband I've just described. And for the parent or the father in particular, Paul says to us, we need to avoid embittering and discouraging our children. That is, we need to encourage them and help them to flourish. What does this mean? Well, I think basically it means don't be so hard on your children and harsh with them that they ultimately have no choice but to reject your leadership and rebel. When we're seeking to raise our children and have them obey us, I think the way to not embitter them and to encourage them is to explain why you want them to do what they, you, they, you want them to do. I need you to do this because X. We need to provide clear and consistent boundaries for our children, but not do so in such a way that exasperates them unnecessarily. It's difficult. Any parent will tell you that. But again, we do it under the Lordship of Christ with love in our hearts. Finally, we get slaves and masters. And this is a relationship where we had love and submission. We had encouragement and obedience. Now we have slaves and masters with obedience and care. And it seems that the, the slave-master relationship was in particular focus for the Colossian church. It, it's likely that the Colossians church was also about to read out the letter of Philemon, which is about a slave and master relationship. And so it gets the most verses in our reading today. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eyes on you to carry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favouritism. And this is a bit awkward, isn't it? Because I, I, I guess we sort of wish maybe that Paul had just said, masters, free your slaves. It's kind of what we, we, we wish was written there, but it's not. And there's a few reasons for that. One is it's a different form of slavery to the form of slavery that we have in our minds when we read the word slavery. But nonetheless, uh, there, there are some remarkable things here. And one of them is that Paul addresses slaves. Because what that does is, is give them equal footing. It, it actually is a working out of the equality all of us have in Christ in the household, in that first century context. The slave, like the master, is worthy of being addressed by the apostle and instructed in how he is to, or she is to live. That's remarkable. And how are they to live? Well, they're to obey and work hard as if they're working for Jesus. 
but not to slaves, who, not to masters who are harsh and careless, because masters have obligations too. And that's remarkable as well. Actually, if you're a Christian master, there's, a, there's an obligation on you for how you treat your slaves, because you are a slave to Christ, verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So treat your slaves with compassion. Care for them as real human beings, for that is what they are, made in the image of God and saved by the death of Christ. Now, I don't think anyone in the room today has got a slave. If you do, we need to go to the police. But the category, though not an exact match that I think this relates best to, is the category of employer and employee. And depending on your boss, you might thoroughly agree with that. But I think that, that, more, that is a more likely, that, that corresponds better to the way slavery worked in the first century Roman world. So if we're an employer, then we need to seek the good of our employee. We need to treat them justly. We need to give them what is right and fair. And of course, I think a lot of employers need to hear this, don't they? Because many are in the habit of seeking to get maximum output at minimum cost and blow the consequences. Well, not if you're an Christian employer. You're to care for your employees to look after them, to provide what is right and fair. And if you're a Christian worker, well, your job, you ought to work at it like you're working for Jesus. Not to slack off when no one's watching, not to get by as easy as you can, but to work hard because your employer's looking out for you and you're looking out for them. It's mutuality. Assuming we're all submitting ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. And it's a different conversation for a different sermon on another day about how it works when part of the, or part of the organisation is not Christian. Because what we have here is Paul working out the implications of Christ being Lord of our life together in our home life. As husbands and wives, as parents and children, as slaves and masters or as employees and employers... See, what Paul's keen to remind us of is that every part of who we are is transformed by who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We might call that the gospel. And the way we're to live because of what God has done for us is to put to death our old self and to put on our new self. And however we live in our household... Whoever we are in our household, we need to live as the kind of person Paul describes earlier in verses 12 to 14. And I'll finish with these words. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Amen. Amen.